looking to the past, I, I found myself realizing that we're, we're not so different, that there were women who didn't have children in the past. They had a whole variety of reasons for not having children. And those reasons weren't that different from ours. Hi, I'm Anna Olson, and you're listening to We're Not Kidding, a podcast devoted to sharing stories surrounding the child-free life. As a life coach, I'm passionate about helping women feel confident and empowered in their choice not to have children. And I believe that by sharing our stories, we help break the stigma. So let's dive in. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm super excited for today's guest. Today, we are speaking with Peggy O'Donnell Heffington, who is an assistant instructional professor in the Department of History at the University of Chicago, where she teaches historical research and writing methods and a bit about gender and women's history, too. Her first book, Without Children, The Long History of Not Being a Mother, was published by Seal Press on April 18th. 2023. So if you're listening to this when the day it airs, that will have been yesterday. In her free time, she can usually be found trail running, baking gluten-free cake, or looking at clothes on the internet. She and her husband, Bob, have two adorable pugs, Ellie and Jake. Welcome, Peggy. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This is this is a total joy. Oh, the joy is mine. Thank you so much for being here and for writing this incredible book, which I'm so excited to get into with you today and talk about and share with the listeners. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Congrats on the launch. We're, oh. we're airing this the day after it's published. That's so exciting. Thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's, it's been such a long time in coming and this is my first book. So it's my first time sort of going through this process and, you know, you spend years with it just between your brain and the computer screen. And then all of a sudden the idea that people out there are reading it and connecting to it is just, it's a surreal experience. So it's, it's very, very cool to be here. Oh yeah. I'm so excited for you and all the good things to come from this. So before we launch fully into talking about the book, can you start by sharing with the listeners a little bit about your own child-free story? Yeah, sure. In part, my own story is got me to this book. And I think the interesting thing is that my feelings about the world, the word child-free are fraught, not about the existence of the word. Like I'm very glad it exists, but in its application to my own life, it has sort of an intentionality to it that I've never really, never really felt. It's like the question just hasn't come up. Like there hasn't been a moment in my life where the question of, of should I have kids now felt any less absurd than like, should I go live in Italy or something like that? Like, it's just, it's something where a whole variety of, of other factors seem like have, have like kept that question away from, from me. So I, I went to college in California, which was 3000 miles from where I grew up. Um, I grew up in the Boston area. And then I spent the rest of my twenties in graduate school, making $22,000 a year and living in Berkeley, California and dating men who were wildly <laughs> wrong for me. And then, and then since then I've been with my now husband for, for almost eight years. And, and for seven of those years, we've had at least two hours drive between our jobs. And that makes even like dog logistics complicated, let alone, you know, a child who has to go to like a school in one place. And, and so it's, it's sort of like, you know, which lever would we 
pull of a life that we like very much. You know, is it, is it my job, which I spent 10 years trying to get and the market for historians is not robust. So it's not, it's not easy to replace that job. Is it his job? He's um, a retired army officer who's starting a second career in, in a field that he's dreamed about being in since he was a kid, but it involves a lot of travel. Is it both of us? And we go live near my parents, but like, how do we pay, pay a mortgage or rent? But I can, I can also imagine like wiping the board cleaning and running my life again and having it work out in, in, a, in a different way. So I sort of, it's not so much ambivalence in the sense of, I don't know the answer to the question, but, but it, it just sort of made me think about the ways in which the, the decisions that we made, we make and the circumstances of our lives shape the range of decisions that we can make, the range of choices that sort of are available to us. Life is complicated, right? And and that got me thinking about people in the past um, and sort of wondering about the ways in which their lives were complicated as well. And I was sort of comforted in the writing of the book to find out that people's lives have always been complicated. There have always been sort of circumstances that, that have determined their range of options, including their range of options about production. Mm, yes. Yes. I love that. I think your answer there gives so much depth because right. It's for many people. It's a, it's not just the question, do I want kids or not? It's like you said, there's so many, it's so nuanced. There's so many factors. There's so many things that maybe even like prevent you from ever getting to that question or totally. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. And I'm sure that's going to resonate with a lot of people listening to this as well, because it's not just so cut and dry as I want kids or I don't. Yeah. And I think that's the way we talk about it, right? Like if if you want kids, you have them. And if you don't want kids, you don't have them like done deal. But I, I think, I think for so many of us, for, for myself, but but also talking to people I know, it just never, it rarely feels that clean. I think there are so many other factors that that are, are shaping our lives, the circumstances we live in, the kinds of decisions that we've made. And and it like I said, it just sort of changes the range of possible options. And, and so that to me makes it a much more interesting question of, you know, reproductive outcomes become much more interesting because it's not just about desire. It's about like a whole variety variety of other things that like the the big mess that is human life right like that right. that's what that's what it's about yeah i love that and i really loved reading your book which i'm going to bring closer to the camera <laughs> which is beautiful but also i just in reading it i learned so much and i loved how you took this what is often spoken about as a very simple like like we've just been saying like yeah. you do or you don't like cut and dry question and kind of shown all the layers throughout history that have shaped people's decisions. And so, yeah, I just really love what you've done here. And so to start, yes. Well, thank you. In the first chapter, you open with the story of Anne Lohman, who is an abortion provider on trial for murder in New York in the year 1841, after her client's abortion resulted in death of the client. You also explain in this chapter that, quote, Prior to the 1820s, there were no laws restricting abortion anywhere in the United States, unquote. And then it goes on, you go on to later in that chapter, also talk about how Connecticut was the first state to outlaw abortion in the year of 1821. And by 1880, it was every state, it was a felony. So as I was revisiting that chapter, thinking about this interview, I was really struck by the years, 1821, and it's 
2023 currently and everything going on with abortion here in the States. So what was it like to write about this at a time when abortion is once again being criminalized in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, it's last summer, right after the Dobbs decision came out, my editor called me and she said, you know, sometimes when you're writing nonfiction, very, very bad news can be very good news for you because it creates space for conversation. And I wouldn't want to yeah. say that, that Dobbs is, is good news in any way. But I think it does, it does make it a really interesting time to talk about the history of not having children at this moment where people in power are trying very hard to make it harder to not have children. And in part, I think it's an interesting moment because something that became clear to me during doing research for this book is that the history of not having children is in a very profound way a history of abortion. And what I mean by that is that we know sort of historically and from records that people have been limiting births for a really long time. In Europe and in the 18th and 19th century, you have this very sort of steep drop off of, of the number of babies any woman would have in her lifetime. Couples start sort of like spacing children out longer, like the number of years between siblings goes up. The age at last birth falls really dramatically, like from uh, early 40s to, to the mid 30s. In the US in the 19th century, some groups cut their fertility in half from the year 1800 to the year 1900, from about seven average babies per woman to three and a half. And of course, here I'm talking about like married couples with children, because that's the people we have birth records for. Um, right. But I think it would have been even more of a problem for an unmarried woman to have a baby than it would for a married couple to have four instead of three. So I think it stands to reason that women with who were not having children were also limiting births in these in these same ways. And okay, so so why is that a history of abortion? In part, because abortion was the easiest and most available and most socially acceptable way of limiting births. So there were barrier methods, like the, the first condom was invented in 1844. It was like a, a custom-made piece of rubber. Then, as now, condoms require the participation and knowledge of the male partner, right? There were also sort of early diaphragms, like rubber discs that could be inserted in front of the cervix. But that kind of violated Victorian sensibilities. Like in the 19th century in the US, women were not supposed to think about sex. And to use a diaphragm, you had to think about sex before you were having sex to go like put it in. And that was was sort of so socially unacceptable that that um, those those barrier methods were really more used by, by sex workers who were clearly thinking about sex before they had sex. For your average woman, it would have been having an abortion after the fact would have um, been something she could take care of very quietly on her own, didn't require her husband or sexual partner's participation, didn't require her to sort of like, you know, acknowledge to herself that she was thinking about sex beforehand. And and so, so I mean, to get back to your question, this matters now because we have this very, very long history of women using abortion to control their reproduction, sometimes to opt out entirely of having kids. And they often did that outside of the law or in direct violation of the law. And I think that there's this fantasy at this moment in some parts of the political spectrum in the United States that if you just make it harder to access abortion or you make it harder to opt out of having kids, that we'll just like magically all start having more kids. Like we'll, we'll just be like, whoops, I guess I can't control my reproduction. But history really tells us that, that women have always sought out ways of limiting births. They have always sought them out, even if they weren't completely safe or if they weren't completely legal. And I don't think that there's anything to suggest that they won't continue doing that. 
So, so at the moment, efforts to criminalize abortion are likely not going to reduce the number of abortions that people have. They're going to make them riskier legally or, or physically risky. Right. Yeah, it was... It was really interesting, too, I think, when you were talking about abortion in the states. And, you know, it's really interesting to think of that sentence that it's like prior to 1820s, there were no laws about abortion in the U.S. So it was, yeah, it wasn't part of, like, legislation. Totally. Yeah. And and, and in particular, in the early in the early part of pregnancy, people didn't really even think ab- about it as having abortion. They talked about, you know, taking substances, herbs, pills, tinctures that were, their purpose was to female regulation. They would restore menstruation. The idea being like, whoop, your period's gone. So you drink this tea and then ta-da, it comes back. You know, <laughs> um, you've been, you've been re-regulated. And there's, there's sort of a long history of that being entirely women's business that they're just sort of doing with no intervention on the part of the state or or it's not really like their husband or sexual partner's business. It's just sort of like something that women are doing for their own health. So at the very least in the, the early part of pregnancy for, for a very long time in Europe and then, and then certainly the early years of the American colonies and into the early Republic, it was just sort of not considered something that the, the law had any control over. And so the, the earliest laws start to outlaw abortion later in pregnancy, once it's sort of very obvious to everyone that the woman is pregnant. And then around mid-century, you have you have states sort of adding in laws to, to criminalize it at all stages of pregnancy, even in that sort of early stage where, you know, there was no way to even prove that a woman was pregnant at that point. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it is so interesting. So I guess in reading this, something I took away was that being child-free is definitely not a modern phenomenon. And can you talk a bit about not having children in the past and how they avoided having kids before modern birth control existed and why they may might have made the decision to not have children? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I touched a little bit on, yeah. on, on the how, but but one of the, the most sort of just like silly, fun things in researching the book was reading about sort of all of these very old methods of birth control. And so the, the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks and, and the, the rabbis and the Jewish Talmud, they all talk about various ways of sort of attempting not, not to get pregnant. And most of them talk about barrier methods. They talk about, you know, using strips of fabric like cotton or muslin, sometimes soaked in olive oil or <laughs> discs made out of beeswax or even my favorite are like pieces of fruit, like inserted in front of the <laughs> cervix, which is like a terrifying idea. Um <laughs> But, but so they're, they're, they're thinking about this, like, there's, there's a very funny passage from a Greek physician where he tells women after sex to like squat down and sneeze. As if that <laughs> is like, you're like expelling the semen or something. Um, but in any case, it, it's all evidence that people have been thinking about this for a very, very long time of like how to prevent pregnancy. And then as I mentioned, like, once, once, you became pregnant, there were all kinds of, of herbal concoctions that, that could end a pregnancy at least some of the time. And so, so there was, you know, they, they, they weren't as effective as methods that we have now. They weren't as safe as, as methods we have now. One, one interesting thing, just to go back to the question about the legality of abortion, some of the very earliest laws about regulating 
abortion and making it illegal were actually anti-poisoning laws because people were selling very dangerous substances that could actually kill women. Um, in Illinois, the first anti-abortion law was was sort of classified under laws about poisoning. So they were actually like to protect women from people wow. selling them actual poison. So, so it wasn't as safe and it wasn't as effective, but they had ways that would work at least some of the time. And, you know, in terms of the question of why, um, this was this was an interesting part about my research as well, because if you ask people today why they're not having children, their answers are pretty consistent. And I think your listeners are probably familiar with a lot of them. They say, you know, they say money. They say, I lack the social support. They say, you know, my, my job doesn't allow it or my career goals don't allow it. They talk about concern about the natural environment and they talk about, you know, just wanting to do other things. And if you look to the past, I think people's reasons weren't weren't so different. They they didn't have children because they lacked social support. They didn't have children because they there was a need to sort of economically contribute to their families that, you know, meant they they had to go live and be a maid in someone's house or something and and didn't get married and have children. They worried about, you know, whether the natural environment that they lived in could support another child. And and I think in some cases they just like women today, you know, wanted to do other things. There are there are examples in the book that I point to of of women who became nuns. And, and granted, you know, many women became nuns because they were genuinely, you know, religious. I think there are also examples that you can point to where the fact that you got to live a life that was centered on reading and writing and teaching and maybe having some political influence, where where that was just as appealing. So, you know, I, I think looking to the past, I, I found myself realizing that we're, we're not so different. We're, we're not, that there were women who didn't have children in the past. They had a whole variety of reasons for not having children. And those reasons weren't that different from ours. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is really fascinating. And yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like, you know, before reading your book, what were my unexamined assumptions? And yeah. Probably that more people had kids. There wasn't as strong of a desire to not have kids. It was just kind of what you did. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's really cool to to be like, no, actually, like people were opting out of parenthood for the same reasons that we do t- that many are today. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's 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 always been a minority experience. I'm, I'm certainly not saying, you know, most women didn't have children yeah. or most people didn't have children, but it wasn't uncommon since the 18th or 19th century in, in Northwestern Europe, about one in five women remained childless their whole lives in, in the United States. It was numbers were a little bit smaller, but but I think the of women born in the last decades of the 19th century, it was about one in five or sorry, one in six, about 15 or 16 percent. So these are not like, I don't know, these are not minuscule numbers. It's a, it's a minority, but it's not not completely uncommon. And I think I don't know, I, I got I got a lot of people asking me when I was starting to write the book, like, how could you possibly write the long history of not being a mother? Because didn't everyone just have kids in the, in the past? And and one of the more interesting things to find out is that no, not everyone had had children in the past. And it wasn't just because they were nuns or, you know, experienced infertility. It was it was a whole variety of reasons. Mm, yeah, I love that. It's almost like for me, just personally learning that is it comforting in a way that like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, me too. Me too. That, that we're not out here sort of innovating and yeah. being the first, the, the first generation to ever, you know, pass through our fertile years and then grow old without children. Like, like people, people have been doing this. They've lived entire lives for, for centuries. And yeah, I also found it to be incredibly comforting. Yeah. Um, So another thing that reading your book kind of illustrated to me was 
as we're have just been talking about, it's not a modern thing for women to opt out of having kids. But what really surprised me was actually how recent the division between mothers and non-mothers is. So can you expand on this and share a bit about how that division is a more modern experience? Yeah, I had this really alarming moment sort of early on in, in research when I realized that if you went back in history, like not not particularly far in American history or or you know European history, women without children, in the way we think of them today, as sort of fundamentally different than mothers, having sort of chosen to have a totally different social role than mothers, sort of disappeared. <laughs> if you, like I said, if you if you go you know a century and a half back in American history, or you go basically anywhere else in the world, social motherhood in terms of meaning like the the social role of acting as a mother was a huge part of life in the American. In colonies, children were sort of a shared resource and burden. They were sort of passed between people's houses fairly regularly. And women without children played really critical roles in helping raise the children of, of biological mothers, of their neighbors and sisters and friends. So if you didn't get married, you might help your sister with her six children. Or um, if you were experiencing infertility and you were you were married and just never had children of your own, you might end up having a child like sent to go live with you because you've got tons of time and space and you know your neighbor down the road doesn't. And the sociologist Patricia Hill Collins, whose work on motherhood I think is, is really enlightening, or it was for me, she's observed that this sort of like Western European American nuclear family model where two adults are solely responsible for their biological offspring. She says it's not not only the most stressful model of parenting in the world, it's also the most unusual that, mm-hmm. that really in most other places, parents are not expected to do it alone. And the corollary of that is that, you know, sort of other people in their community are expected to contribute in in like really material daily ways to, to raising their children. And, and so I think that that meant that the the kind of role a woman without children and a biological mother might play in their community weren't actually that different because they would both be sort of participating in the project of raising the community's children. Yeah, I really love that. And I think for a few reasons, because one, I feel like personally that just sort of resonates with me. I'm yeah. I'm someone who doesn't want to have my own kids, but like I love opportunities to help like with my niece and nephew or they live four hours away. So I don't have that opportunity a lot, but, or with like friends, kids, you know, like I love having a role in their lives. And so I find it really, I really like it for that reason, but also just, I hear a lot of, you know, I think a struggle I hear in the child-free community, kind of this feeling of loss of friends as they go on to have kids. And I just love that the kind of community structure, because the nuclear family wasn't, yeah, present at that time or or as what it is today, it allowed for moms to lean on non-moms and vice versa. Like, I think that's really yeah. beautiful. And I think it's also comforting that this was a way that people lived in the past because it's like, you know, we have that those examples to look to to hopefully share the burden or, you know, like have more fulfilling communities, you know, wherever we fall totally. with kids or without kids. Totally. Yeah. yeah I, one of my, my favorite, like tiny little stories from the book is that John Hancock, founding father, John Hancock, largest signature on the Declaration <laughs> of Independence. He was raised by, by his aunt and uncle who had no biological children, presumably though, though I have no way of knowing, but presumably because uh, they, they were experiencing infertility and just weren't able to, but his, 
Hancock's father passed away very suddenly. His mother was suddenly in very difficult financial position. And she sent him to go live with his very wealthy aunt and uncle in, in Boston who were merchants or his, his uncle was a merchant. And so they, they take him in as their own. He's seven years old at the time. They send him to Boston Latin School. They send him to Harvard College. His uncle takes him on as, as his business partner and heir. When he dies, John Hancock in inherits the family firm. And that's why he becomes John Hancock. And his, um, his aunt, Lydia, he, on the death of his uncle, his uncle left the, the big mansion on Beacon Hill in Boston to his aunt, who immediately signs it over to her nephew, to John, on the condition that she's allowed to live there with him for the rest of her life. Um, and we don't have a lot of sort of evidence of what she felt in, in this situation. But definitely the way she's acting is as someone who is sort of operating as as John Hancock's mother. But there is another woman who is also John Hancock's mother. And and I, I find that, I don't know, I just find that really sort of inspiring that like there, there could be more than two adults involved, you know, materially in in raising and loving and caring for a child. So yeah, I agree with you. It it, it suggests to us that this the 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 way we find ourselves living right now, where it does feel like there's this sort of like profound divide between mothers and, and women without children, that, that it doesn't have to be that way. It, it, it wasn't in the past and it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, exactly. That's such a cool story too. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I just love the more expansive view of family that that allows yeah. for. And I think just... Yeah, I just feel like a healthier community can exist yeah. because of that rather than focusing on our difference. And not to say that all child-free people need to have the desire to of course to take on a role like that because not everyone wants to be around kids and that's totally like fair and legitimate. But yeah, I just I think, you know, I fall into the category of like I do enjoy being able yeah. to and also I don't like I genuinely want to support my sister who has kids or my friends who have kids and I don't want me not having kids and them having kids to become a separator in our relationship. So yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, of course, that occurred to me reading about Lydia Hancock that like, maybe she thought her life was awesome. She was like, super rich, um, <laughs> by all accounts, very happily married living in this massive, gorgeous mansion. And then all of a sudden, she has a seven year old, like maybe that was not <laughs> awesome for her. <laughs> the thing that I find inspiring is that it, it's the idea that like, you know, the, the burden of raising the next generation is shared. And yeah. so like you said, not everyone needs to feel sort of compelled to participate in it, but it does seem to open up space for people who who don't have children of their own who do want to participate to to sort of participate in it. And yeah, I mean, it, it's just sort of like a a vision of of maybe where we could go um, bef before the nuclear family model sort of came to reign supreme, which is really in the early 19th century, where it goes very quickly from being something that is a new way of arranging families to like the only acceptable American way of arranging families. So in sort of the project of westward, westward expansion, you have, you know, the, the sort of wholesale destruction of, of native family structures, of indigenous family structures, which were much more flexible. So people were sort of forced to assimilate in part by separating them into nuclear family units where sort of a traditional gendered division of labor was the way the family was was organized and where parents cared for their children not within a community. And I think the fascinating thing is that, you know, 
five, seven decades earlier, American colonial communities looked much more like those those indigenous family structures where the sort of the boundaries between the family and the community were not so clear. Wow, that's really, yeah, that's really interesting. So it was, as you said, also used as a tool of assimilation. Absolutely, yeah. Wow, yeah, that's really an interesting context to view it in too. And, you know, it definitely worked, but it also like, created so many problems for everyone like you know like yeah I don't think anyone I think anyone really what is the word I'm looking for like I don't know who the nuclear family model really works for I guess is what I'm trying to say <laughs> but yeah I mean I, I but but it, the amazing thing about it is that I think it not only became like the preferred American way of organizing the family, it became, it, it came to be understood as like the, the natural way that humans organize yeah. themselves, that like, we, we don't even question that, that it could be otherwise when, you know, m- most of the way people around the world organize their families is not, is not in these sort of like independent units. And, and the way, you know, it just two centuries in our past, people would not have recognized that as sort of like the natural way of, of making a family. Yeah. So, so, I mean, the power it's had on us, incredible powerful. Yeah. 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 It's really eye-opening. So for a lot of child-free people I've spoken with and likely who are also listening to this episode and also for myself, this is a, definitely pertains, but the environment and uncertainty about the future plays a strong role in their decision not to have kids. And in chapter four of your book, you really explore this like in depth, which I loved. You, and you illustrate through various examples how this is not a new or novel concept. Mm-hmm. So um, can you talk a bit about what you share in chapter four? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in in the present, across the political spectrum, you sort of have people who will say that the idea of not having children out of concern for the environment is this like bizarre thing that millennials and Gen Xers and Greta Thunberg like dreamed up. And I don't know if you remember in um, 2019, but when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was sort of talking on Instagram stories and she raised she raised this issue where she was like, you know, the the future of the climate is such that it makes people, makes young people sort of wonder whether it's ethical to still have children. And Fox News basically flips out. They accuse her of, of advocating for civilizational suicide. But I think you even see it on the, the political left as well. A friend and I like to joke that the New York Times publishes like an annual opinions piece that's like, you know, that, that acknowledges the, the threat of climate change and then is like, but children bring hope. So you should still have them. But if you look at the past, the idea of not having children because out of concern for the natural environment is not new. And and so I, I also think it is not absurd at all to be thinking that way. And there's kind of two distinct strains to this history. There's one strain of people thinking, maybe I should have maybe I or people should have fewer children because of the harm they will do to the environment. The other strain is maybe I or people should have fewer children because of the harm the environment is going to potentially do to those children. And those are very two sort of very different histories, but they're, they're, intertwined. Yeah. 
So in the first case, the idea thinking about people as causing harm to the environment. In the late 18th and early 19th centuries in Europe, you have you have people start talking about resource scarcity. They're in the middle of the Industrial Revolution, which is like clear-cutting forests and like belching black smoke all over the skies. They've also just watched the French Revolution, which was in part sparked by by famine, by food shortages. And they're thinking like, oh God, too many too many people is like not awesome. The most famous sort of representative of this thinking is Thomas Malthus, who came up with the idea of of the Malthusian crisis, which is basically the idea that um, people will have have more children than or, you know, the population will increase faster than the natural environment can support them. And then you're going to get to this point where there's a crisis where it's either famine, disease or war over resources that like taps the population back down. You can pull this idea into the 20th century with some strains of the early environmental movement in the United States, people talking about, you know, like people, people pollute, more people causes more harm to the environment. And later in the century, the idea of the the carbon footprint of a baby or a person's personal carbon footprint emerges, like the idea that another having a baby in America, creating another American is sort of more damaging to the environment than anything else you can do. Like, flying on planes or eating meat or whatever. I think there are some like, historically speaking, there are some like concerns with this, this kind of thinking. Malthus's ideas were later used to justify racist and eugenicist ideas and policies about like saying, well, people who are poor and live in urban areas should have fewer children or people in the global south should have fewer children because look at the damage they're doing to the environment. The idea of, of the, the sort of carbon footprint of babies, um, people smarter than me have pointed out that that was actually invented by oil company PR people who wanted to sort of offload responsibility for, for the climate crisis onto individuals. So, so I think there definitely are legitimate concerns about sort of like the damage people do to the environment. But the the history is, you know, it's complicated, I think, at the very least. But I think the sort of more productive strain of the history and the one that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was sort of referring to, I think, and, and I think the one that a lot of your listeners and the one I identify with is the idea, you know, is it ethical to bring a child into a world where the environment might cause harm to them? This is an incredibly old idea. I mean, anthropologists have shown that, that even non-human mothers intentionally limit the number of children they have in times of environmental crisis. Primates have been shown to sort of abandon infants when they know that that there's there's a famine or a flood or droughts or something like that. In During the Irish famine, we talked earlier, I'm Margaret Irene O'Donnell. My people are from our potato famine Irish who came to Boston. By some estimates, there were um, three or 400,000 fewer births in Ireland during the 20 years of the famine than there would have been otherwise. Some of that is starvation, that a starving body is less fertile. Um, but I think we have to imagine that some of it is people saying, you know, do I really want to bring another child into a world where we we cannot eat? Like their life is going to be very hard. And in, in 1969, all of this sort of comes together where you have a woman named Stephanie Mills who gave this like barn burner of a graduation address. She's 22 years old. She's graduating from college in California. And she's, she's sort of one of the first to really articulate that the, the, environmental concerns weighed on her reproductive decisions in this particular way. She wasn't worried that her child was going to pollute the environment. She was worried about the the effect pollution was going to have on her child. And and I think I think that is sort of the the legacy that that we're living in right now. So when when people like your listeners are thinking about not 
having children because they're worried about the natural environment their children will live in. We're we're connected back to, you know, feminists in, in the environmental movement, but also, you know, people living in times of environmental crisis all, all the way through history. Thank you for that, like, overview and even kind of where these lines of thinking have come from and also kind of distilling it down to the one that is more the ethical idea of is it fair to that child to bring them into the world because I think you know also that one does resonate for me and it's like child people who choose not to have kids are often painted societally like in the selfish light but I think that's a very compassionate actually way of thinking so anyways yeah 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 and I only bring up the the sort of two strains to suggest that the I don't want to make it sound like it's it's like I think it's absurd to to be concerned about sort of you know the the extent to which Americans are incredibly resource intensive beings who emit a lot of carbon right so so creating more Americans is is going to to sort of increase demand on the environment but I think you can get pushback there from people who say, well, like technology is going to fix it. We're going to figure something out. Like we, we don't need to worry about that. And maybe we will, but we already know that there has been damage done to the environment. What has been done so far is going to make the next generation's lives harder than ours. And, and so I don't think it's, it's ridiculous now based on the facts that we have or in light of of our history to to have people thinking about that as as they're sort of weighing reproductive decisions. Yeah, totally. So who are some of your favorite people that you researched for this book? Can you share a story or two that you found particularly interesting or fascinating? Yeah. So one of my favorites was Helen Gurley Brown, who was the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan Magazine from, I think, the 60s through the 90s. And she's sort of a fascinating woman. She she clashed with a lot of feminists of, of the day and was, was sort of like very outspoken about her advocacy for everything from you know, sleeping with your boss, if you feel like it, sort of sexual liberation to beauty leaning into your your sex appeal and, uh, you know, kind of everything you would expect of a cosmopolitan editor-in-chief, right? Um, <laughs> but she also coined the term having it all with a book that she wrote called Having It All. I think she was in her 60s when she wrote the book, sort of this invi- advice manual for, you know, how to succeed in a man's world, basically. And what she meant by having it all was sort of professional and sexual liberation. Very quickly, that term gets sort of co-opted to mean, you know, what, what we think of it today as like a husband, children, and a job, right, and a career. But for her, it never included, it never included children. And and so, so I don't know. I thought she was a fascinating person, but I also thought it was sort of fascinating how quickly our culture just sort of takes that term and is like, well, it must include children, even though the person who coined it, she was sort of baffled by the idea why why you would want to have children and a career at the same time. She's like, doesn't that just sound very hard? <laughs> Which, yes, I think it does. But yeah, I, I think it's sort of telling about the world that we live in that immediately having it all for a woman has to include having children. Yeah. And then I guess my other favorite person in the book is is Ella Baker, who is well known as sort of a leader of the civil rights movement. I think she's less well known as sort of someone who who was not a mother and, and never wanted to have children. But what I thought was interesting about her was how her civil rights work and her the way she thought about motherhood and how she was, you know, how she felt called to care for her community were kind of linked. She never wanted to have children of her own, but she grew up in a context where people 
as we were saying earlier, sort of cared for each other's children. She ends up raising her niece, who is eight when she arrives at Ella Baker's doorstep and she, you know, raises her through through the teen years, the tough years. But for her, the kinds of civil rights work that she was advocating for were about sort of like communities supporting each other, like people sort of coming together and helping each other better their lives. And I think that's that's sort of linked to why she'd never felt sort of called to have biological children of her own, but was very open to sort of parenting a child who needed a parent. And so I found her sort of inspiring in terms of how non-biological forms of mothering or care can, can be like deeply politically useful, but also sort of can play out in a person's personal life. Yeah. I love both of those examples. Yeah. Yeah. What incredible women. Yeah. So in conducting your research for this book, what were some of the most surprising things that you came to learn? So I I don't know. Maybe it shouldn't have been surprising to me at all. But one thing that was surprising was how hard American politicians and thinkers and men, usually men in power, starting in the early 19th century, have worked to make not having children seem like deviant and wrong and bad and sort of like not doing your civic duty. Theodore Roosevelt gave a speech in 1905 where he talks about women experiencing infertility and how they they deserve our pity and we should love them. They're, they're great. But he says women who have chosen not to have children, he compares them to soldiers running off the battlefield in the middle of a war, or he says they're as useful to society as unleavened bread, whatever, whatever that means. And, and it struck me at a certain point, like the divide we feel between mothers and women without children. Like, that's why, (laughs) because people have spent a century and a half trying to convince us that there is something wrong with women who do not have children, and that there is like one option that is correct and one option that is bad. And I think that that boxes mothers in just as much as it boxes in women without children, because it becomes like there is one default option and and you must do that. And, and if you don't, you're somehow deviant. I think I knew that on some sort of cellular level. I think those of us who are, you know, in our mid thirties and, and go about the world without children, like encounter this idea that there's sort of something not totally socially acceptable about what you're doing, but, but it was just really striking to me how hard and how explicitly people attempted to make that belief that that was widely held. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is really, it's really like illuminating and to, to be able to like pinpoint it and, and to see how it was politicized and yeah. Wow. It just makes so much. Go ahead. Like what business is the president of the United States having like, is like, I don't know, ad hominem attacks on women (laughs) without children, but like, but it was that, it was that important because I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a measure of control. It's a, it's about controlling women's options and, and sort of, you know, making it clear that there is one acceptable way to go and, and every other way is, is not acceptable. But yeah, I just, I sort of couldn't believe how bald it was. Yeah. And how like damaging, like you were saying, it also boxes in mothers, I, like, yeah. and how damaging that and hard that must be if you do go that route because you think it's the default option. And then you're like, this isn't what I thought it would be. Um, And right. like, 
all those internal battles. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Somebody who might have, um, if, if the, if it had even occurred to them that other options were available, they might have taken other options. If they live in a society that works so hard to tell them, like, not only is this the only option, like this is just what happens. This is the norm. Yeah. I mean, it, it dramatically limits people's options. Yeah. And your value as a person is kind of based on which you choose. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to be unleavened bread, right? right. <laughs> Fully leavened, gluten-free for us, but yeah, yeah. gluten-free, but with yeast. Yeah. No, it's, it's just, yeah, the, the metaphor was really striking. And I mean, the piece about sort of the, the, the direct comparison to a soldier who runs away on a battlefield, that it, it's that it is your civic duty as an American, just like fighting in a war would be. To, to have children and and so to not do yes. it is is like a shirking of your responsibility as a citizen as much as it is sort of like not meeting some social norm right and it kind of has a layer in that particular comparison of like one is cowardly and one is brave and what you should aspire to yeah absolutely absolutely and i think that's a huge piece of it i mean I don't think it's lost on on anyone, whether they have children or not, that we live in a society that talks about how much it values mothers and then like materially does not value mothers, right? Yes. <laughs> that we, we give cards every May that say like moms have the hardest job in the world and then we don't have paid maternity leave that's guaranteed, you know, for example. And so so it is telling women like you you need to do the brave option. You need to serve your country in this way. This is your civic duty. And also we're not going to support you in that. We're going to expect you to sort of take it on entirely on your own. Yeah. 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 Hearing you say that reminded me of some statistics you bring up towards the end of the book, I think about, yeah. you know, like there have been studies done like parents versus non-parents and happiness mm -hmm. levels. And so I think yeah. it was something like in the States, there's like a factor of 12%, like non-parents are 12% happier than parents. Yeah. But that is actually like reversed in countries where there is uh, infrastructure to support parents. Totally. Yeah. And that was yeah. really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I, you're exactly right. There are studies periodically on a global scale of, of sort of people's sense of well-being and happiness. I think they're called the, the, the Global Happiness Survey or something like that. And they find consistently that in the United States, people without children are happier than parents and, and not just happier than parents who have small children whose lives are quite difficult sometimes, <laughs> but, but that American non-parents are happier than parents at sort of every stage of life by, by 12%. But as you said, places like France and the Scandinavian countries where they have really robust support systems for, for parents, it flips and parents are actually happier by eight or 10% than, than non-parents, which, which really suggests that like the material experience of parenting can be radically changed when those parents are supported. And whether that's, you know, I mean, there we're talking about sort of government policies, but it also, I think, suggests that the the vision of a community or a way of structuring a family that wasn't just sort of isolated yeah. nuclear family units, but actually included some level of the community support would improve the the experience of, of parenting as well as sort of make people without children sort of less isolated. Which it just totally makes sense that if you support yeah. it, support people and have more of a communal way of interacting and raising that next generation that like everyone's happiness improves. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. Okay. So am I correct in understanding, I think you talk a little bit about this in the book that you actually set out to write a slightly different book than the one that you ended up writing. And can you talk about that? What you had 
thought you'd write and then how it came to be this book? Yeah, sure. Yeah, when I when I originally sort of conceived of the book and wrote the proposal, it was more of a celebration of who who didn't have children and how cool they were and how interesting their lives were. And and there certainly is an element of that in the book. You meet a, I met a ton of really cool people from the past who lived all kinds of interesting lives. But I signed the book contract in in the middle of February 2020. And then so like a month later, we go into global lockdown and and I end up writing the whole book in the middle of a global pandemic where in particular, like the people who were struggling, everyone was struggling, of course, but the people who were struggling were parents of young children and who were sort of completely cut off from even the, the meager support networks that they that they have in their, that they've sort of pieced together in their normal lives. And it just got me sort of thinking about the ways in which it is difficult to parent in the United States today and the reasons that it's difficult to parent in the United States today. And then I had this revelation that those are the same reasons that people give when they say they don't plan to parent. Oftentimes that, that the list I gave earlier of not enough money, not enough social support, not enough time, their jobs are too demanding. And, and it, and it just sort of, I had this revelatory moment that like this history of people increasingly not having children is also a history of us living in a society that's choosing to make parenting very hard. And then, so I was like, wait, I think we're all in this together. Like, I, <laughs> I don't actually think that I should write a book that celebrates one side versus the other, as much as I should write a book that is about how we kind of got here. And, and and sure, this is this is a book that sort of focuses on people who didn't have children for all of these reasons. But I think much of the book is about the sort of decisions that were made to make parenting harder. <laughs> and then, and, or, just, or to sort of intensify all of these reasons so that people sort of increasingly don't have children because of them. And the people who do are struggling all the more. So I think the book and I don't know, I don't want to be I don't want to be grateful to the pandemic, but I think I think it made me think more expansively about what the story is and and who is sort of included in in the story. And it made me really question that idea that like that I had gone into writing the book with, which is that there's sort of sort of some fundamental divide between parents and non-parents, and that one could write a history that is only of non-parents. Cause I actually think it's it's much more intertwined than that. Mm, yeah. And I love that. And thank you for sharing that background with us yeah. because I think it's so interesting. Like what you said there that really stuck out was like, we're all in this together. And that is something yeah. I have felt, but like not really been able to articulate. And I think that this book definitely illustrates it. You, what you've said, like articulates it. And so, yeah, it, it's like the context that I needed for that feeling that I had, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. I mean, that that means that means the world. Yeah. I think I'm I'm so glad. I say at the conclusion of the book that I sort of like wince when I realize how close I came to writing a book that sort of like might have contributed to a feeling of divide. And that that was the book that I originally sort of proposed and, and was intending to write. And I'm glad that that I was sort of able to have this revelation and write what I think is sort of a more interesting book, but also a more generous book. Yeah. And I just, I was really struck at how you just wove so many facets together that really paint this picture of how we got here. Like it was from kind of like the look at abortion and how it wasn't criminalized when it was and like the feminist and environmentalist movements, even just communal aspects of raising children and just all, all of these things come together and like influence 
where we are today. And I don't know, like maybe that's an obvious thing to say, but it was just really interesting to me and really beautiful how you did it. And it's like, it's such a, it's such a broad conversation. Like there's so many, it's such a deep conversation or there's so many facets to it, but you distilled it down really succinctly and really beautifully. I just, I'm just so grateful that you wrote this book. (laughs) So thank you. (laughs) Of course. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it can be a really lonely experience to be someone with, without kids. We, we think of it like we talked about at the beginning, like it's just thing about desire. Like, are you normal or do you not want children? And if you don't want children, you don't have them. And then you're like weird and, and in a corner. And and the the history just suggests that that there are so many factors at play, as as you said, that that play into the experience that we're all having of of sort of feeling feeling lonely in our individual decisions. Writing the book helped me see that it's not just individual decisions, that these are, these are factors that have histories that sort of weigh on the, the circumstances of our lives and that we're not the first people to have lived lives that look like these and our lives are the result of, yeah, of, of a confluence of historical factors. For me, that was like, I don't know, an incredibly comforting thing to to walk away from this with. That it's it's not just like me doing something weird. It's um nice. it's me being sort of a logical result of a whole variety of of historical factors. Yeah, I think and it is interesting how isolate like reading your book, realizing how long this has been going on, and and yet it's interesting how isolating it still it feels. Yeah. In modern times. And I wonder, I, I have no idea, but I wonder if there was a time like before the nuclear family, if it felt as isolating or how, what that experience was like, you know, but um, yeah, I do think it's very interesting, the particular moment in history that we are living and, you know, how common it is um, that people are opting out of parenthood. And yet it still feels so isolating. It's just, and then to have all this historical yeah. context to look at and be like, yeah, this isn't new. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it probably always, well, I mean, depending on the person, certainly um, I have a chapter on infertility, which, you know, if if you read sort of diary entries or letters of, of women who were married and wanted children very badly and just never had them. I mean, I think I don't want to downplay by saying, you know, everyone was a social mother and it was just great. Yeah. I mean, the experience of of wanting biological children and not having them is is incredibly intense today. And and we see women in the past experiencing enormous grief and and feelings of isolation and and feelings of of sadness and even sort of compounded in the American colonies by religious beliefs that like God has judged you unworthy of motherhood. Mm. Like, I mean, it, right. So I don't want to, I don't want to downplay that. So I, I do think that many women experienced it as, as isolating in the past, but I don't think all of them did. You know, I, I, yeah. I think that there's, there's also evidence that there were women who were choosing that life or making choices that facilitated that life or who never had children of their own, but, but participated in, in very sort of satisfying ways in the lives of the children in their communities and, and, you know, didn't feel isolated. So, so I think like today, there's sort of a range of, of experiences, which I, I also think is, is sort of comforting. It's like, oh, look at the past. There are people too, you know, they're just like <laughs> us. And so there's, there's sort of, I don't want to make it seem like, like it was, it was sort of great and completely it felt completely normal in the past, but, but I think that there was sort of a range of experiences as there is today. Yeah, that makes total sense. Absolutely. 
absolutely. So I'm curious, how did the experience of writing this book like change or impact you personally? I don't know if it was the experience of writing the book or if it was the experience of living through a global pandemic for three years, but yeah, I feel like in a lot of ways, it sort of softened me. Like there is a particular experience of being a person, uh, I think probably in particular a woman without children that can, that used to make me feel quite ungenerous towards others where, you know, I would find myself cleaning up after an event at, at, you know, that we had hosted for students because everyone has to go to daycare pickup or, you know, people making assumptions about your availability or your flexibility in terms of your time um, that they wouldn't make for parents. And, And I still, you know, I'm not perfect, but I used to get incredibly defensive and sort of angry about, about those things. And I think the, the experience of sort of thinking about how it didn't always have to be like my choices versus yours. Like there was a way of thinking more generously about, about people and their lives and, and how they relate to mine, that it's not a competition. It's not a zero sum game. Like that in a lot of ways, I think, I think it sort of softened me towards everyone parents in particular. And, and it's also made me, you know, want to participate more. It's made me think harder about participating in lives of children in my community and, and my, the lives of my friends' children. Am I great at it? No, because it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's people, people live far away. Our lives are really busy. Also, we live in a society that sort of assumes that, you know, nuclear families reign supreme and that that's where the caring for children is done. And so, but it's made me think more generously and it's made me think harder about, yeah, my life and my time and where my energy should go versus, you know, that of the parents around me. Yeah, that's really beautiful. That's really cool. I don't want to make it sound like I've solved it. You know, I I still, (laughs) I still find myself like cleaning up those pizza boxes. Like, well, I wish I had someone to go pick up because (laughs) I could be out of here too. Um, But I guess it's, it's just made me sort of check myself a little bit more. Yeah. And hopefully there'll be like, it would be awesome if there was, and maybe there is, but like, you know, parents also having more generous thoughts towards child free, like, like, yeah, yeah, can we all soften towards each other and, you know, not, yeah. Cause some of those, it's hard to just feel like your time isn't as valued because you don't have a child or those things, you know, like, yeah, I don't know. I still, still working on those. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, right. And, and it shouldn't entirely be on, on people without children, but, um, you know, I, I think, yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard because there are a lot of assumptions made about about what your life looks like. Yeah. And yeah, but yes, I, it, it would be my hope that parents might also read this book and and maybe soften towards, you know, the people without kids in their lives. Um, and also, I sort of suggest at the end, you know, part of this work, it can't just be on someone like me to sort of insist that I play a role in the lives of my friend's kids. Parents have to sort of open the door as well. I mean, we, we live in a world where the, the nuclear family is, is a closed unit. And so not only does it mean that people outside that unit have to like put themselves out there as as sort of offering help and support but people inside the unit need to open the door and let them in and and so it really has to be sort of a mutual thing if, if we want to to move towards a, a world where we're more interconnected and and that we are we're sort of rethinking family yeah that's so true and so well said yeah cool what is the impact you hope that this book will have on the reader? I hope that people feel seen in in this book. People who have had a whole variety 
of paths towards their reproductive present. I know I have friends who, you know, thought for a really, really long time about whether or not they wanted kids and then ultimately did, but, but who still sort of identify with, with both sides of, of that, of that question. Or I know I have, I have good friends who, who have children and who sort of think in very similar ways as I do about like the harm that might come to those children because of the environment, for example. And so, so it is my hope that they, they can also read this book and feel, feel seen in some ways. Um, but primarily, it is my hope that those of us who don't have children, for a whole variety of reasons, will will walk away from this book feeling more connected to each other and connected to a long history of people who didn't have kids for a whole variety of reasons. Because I think for so many of us, it feels really fraught. And they're speaking for myself, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of reasons why I'm sitting here without without children and and sort of getting to experience all of these women in the past who who shared many of those same reasons. Yeah, it's made me more like at, at peace with with my own life. And I'm hopeful that that can, you know, that, that readers take something from that, that they they feel seen and connected. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I can attest to having those experiences reading this book. It is, yeah, definitely felt comforted by the long history. And also, you know, just thinking more about the future and like where, how can we soften towards one another and yeah. really be in this together. So yeah, um, it, it seems like it's, it's the only way forward, right? Like right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. We're, we're, we're finding ourselves as, at a point where, you know, I think parents are at a breaking point and also the, the number of people who are not having children appears to be on the rise. And I would never want to say that that's a bad thing because, you know, we have, we have reproductive options and, and that that's, that's great. People are, people are living lives, but I'm sure those things are connected that like parents are in crisis and people are increasingly choosing to not have children. And it, it seems like, like a way forward that could potentially help all of us is, is by reducing the feeling of isolation. Absolutely. Yeah. Having recounted the long history of not being a mother, what place in society do you hope women without children will have in the future? As it becomes more common to not have children, but I also think as it becomes a thing that is talked about a lot more, that it's not something that's sort of shameful that you never speak about, but like as as people are sort of increasingly open because they have podcasts like this one or or books like this where we're we're sort of owning it as an identity or learning to own it as an identity or celebrating it as an identity i think it's my hope that it just sort of becomes more normal we're we're living in a world where between it looks like uh, you know in terms of millennials between 1 and 4 and 1 and 5 won't have children and that's i don't know that's a fairly hefty group. Um, there are groups of people in society like like runners. I'm a runner. I'm sure less than one in four Americans are runners, but all of us know some some annoying person who will like tell you about their marathon times. So <laughs> I think we can, we, you know, there are enough people without children to sort of really normalize it as something that, you know, everyone knows people who don't have children. And it's, it's my hope that it that the sort of stigma around it can fall away at least a little bit just by just by the sheer power of sunlight that that you know everyone knows people who don't have children and and it becomes sort of more more normal yeah yeah I think we'll leave it at that yeah I love that yeah so for anyone listening who would like to 
read this book, um, how can they find it and how can they also connect with you? So you can find Without Children anywhere you get books. Um, It's on Amazon, it's on Bookshop, it's on Barnes & Noble. I'm delighted to find that it is also at Target, which is is one of my my personal favorite (laughs) retail experiences. Um, And and it's also at your your local bookstores. You can can always ask if if they're not carrying it. That's that's probably the best way to, to find it. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Peggy O'Donnell, spelled O-H, Donnell. And um, you can find my website, which links to everything, um, peg, or pohuffington.com. I have an events page on there. And at the moment, there's there's like two or three events, but but that will be um, increasing. So so I would love to come to your city and, and talk to you. So feel free to get in touch with me that way um, or come to an event if, if you're nearby. Awesome. Wow. Well, congrats again. Thank and- you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast, for sharing this book with all of us. I just wish you the best with all of this, with your launch. And I'm so excited. I can't believe it's in Target. What? <laughs> also one of my favorites. <laughs> you can you can get anything you need in Target. I, in the acknowledgement section, I actually thank Target for, for being such, a, such an incredible source of support throughout the book writing process. So, yes. <laughs> Um, but thank you very much. And thanks to all of your listeners as well. It's, it's been, it's been great chatting with you. Awesome. Likewise. All right. We'll catch you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you haven't already, please consider sharing, rating, and reviewing this podcast. This is how we reach more people. And in doing so, that's how we break the stigma. I would really appreciate your support in that and helping this podcast reach more listeners. And if you're someone who is struggling with any aspect of your child-free life, head over to my website and book your free clarity call. We'll talk about how you can start living your best child-free life with intention and purpose today.